Sivrata is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. This week, we have Joy Chen, author of the bestseller, Do Not Marry Before the Age of 30, but also has experience in politics and as an executive recruiter turned CEO. Joy and I have a dynamic and energetic conversation where the stories just seem to flow out of her, whether that's about appearing on a speech competition TV show in China or becoming a key opinion leader, KOL, for big brands like Olay and SK2. We also explore the topics of building careers and navigating the Chinese-American identity. Ready to dive in? Hi, Joy. Welcome to Ta for Ta. It's a part of the Seneca Network, and we're really excited to have you on the show today. Hey, Juliana. It's great to be here. And in fact, I go back a long way with the Seneca Network because I recall back in the ancient days of history, Kaiser and I had drinks at Ijo Sujo Complex in Beijing the week that he had just recorded his very first Seneca podcast. And we sat down, he was telling me about it. And I was like, what is this podcasting thing? So I've been on Seneca a couple times over the years. And um, I'm delighted to see how this entire network has grown with uh, the whole sub-China media empire. That's really crazy. And it's just that it was one of the first or the first podcast that was being produced. It's really crazy to see how the network has grown and that you're coming on a different show, but same network. So we're very excited to have you today. Great to be here. This whole media landscape is changing so rapidly. It's so exciting. Now, I would love if you could tell listeners a little bit more about yourself, who you are, what you stand for, what's currently occupying your time. Okay. Um, well, I'm just about to turn 50 in July, so just to collapse the last 50 years, um, I'm a Chinese-American. <laughs> I was born in Maryland on the East Coast of America, and um, I graduated from college uh, in 1991 and moved to Los Angeles. The first 10 years of my career, I worked as a real estate developer in Los Angeles. Uh, then at age 31, I was appointed deputy mayor of Los Angeles where I looked over education and economic development. So I've been interested in education for a long time. I worked in government for one term from ages 31 to 35. Um, at age 35, I switched careers again. I became a global Fortune 500 CEO headhunter or executive recruiter, as we say. So I did that for seven years. I worked across Asia, North America, and Europe, finding CEOs on their top talent for Fortune 500 and other global companies. And then my China story started while I was a CEO headhunter. Actually, I use CEO headhunting methods to headhunt Mr. Right. So at age 38, I got married, had a couple kids at ages 39 and 41. Um, I started my own CEO headhunting firm. And at that time, about 10 years ago, I noticed more and more Chinese study abroad students coming to the United States to study college and graduate school. And I started a careers blog for them called globalrensai.com. This is about 10 years ago when um, people were blogging much more, I think, than they are now. 
I've recruited some grad students at USC and UCLA to translate my blogs into Chinese. So GlobalRinsight.com became a bilingual blog. And they started passing my blog posts all over the world in Liu Shisheng or study abroad student uh, circles. At the time, the big media uh, for them was a big social media in China was called Xiaonei Wang, uh, means inside campus network. And it was a direct mm -hmm. clone of Facebook with the with the blue and white colors and everything. Um, Xiaonei Wang then became Ren Ren Wang. This was well before WeChat and Weibo. Through those circles, my blog became the top resource, career resource for study abroad students from China all around the world. We can say it was the best resource for career research for them or the worst resource. It was the only kind of media that was helping them to get internships and entry-level jobs in their geographies outside of China. Through the Global Rensai blog and Ren Ren Wang at the time, um, China's biggest publisher reached out to me and said, the biggest uh, hua ti, social topic in China right now is a problem of leftover women. Um, the market desperately needs a book to encourage leftover women in China. We spent a year looking for an author to write this book, found that nobody in China can write this, and we need you to write this book. Um, at first, I was like, you know, I'm Chinese-American. My Chinese is not even that great. I have not spent that much time in China. How could I write a book for them? Um, but I ended up writing it. Um, the book came out in 2012. And that launched me on a completely new, crazy career in China. So I've been creating online and offline media for women in China since then. My book, which came out in 2012, is called 三十岁前别结婚, or Do Not Marry Before Age 30. It was a, a big, big hit, powered by the monstrous fashion media at the time. I mean, since then, my, my career has continued to track the ups and downs of various media forms in China. And tell me a little bit more about that. How has your career mirrored the changing media landscape? Would you say it's just in terms of the types of formats? So you mentioned that, you know, you were writing a blog and that was really hot around the time of pre-2011, pre-2012 when the, your book came out. Um, is it just in terms of format or do you think that you've also uh, changed with the changing media appetite, the changing types of content that women or people in China were looking for? Yeah, well, um, that's a good question. I think that my career in China has really mirrored both the media formats as well as the contents of media. Um, regarding the contents of media, I would say that in 2012, when Sashi was published in China, it was like a massive shock wave in China because um, nobody you know, people like would look at the title and gasp and be like, oh my God, I can't believe she said that. And because nobody would imagine that you could possibly wait until after 30. I mean, it seems kind of maybe more common sense for those of us who grew up in, in other societies around the world. But at that time, seven years ago, that book itself, even the title became a meme in China. And it was quite polarizing. And it... Um, you know, that resulted a lot, of course, in, in good book sales. Um, but then, you know, so many women just suddenly started stepping forward. Uh, younger women, you know, were shocked and amazed. And then older women who were approaching age 30 or, or older came forward and said, you know, this book says 
the things that were inside my heart. It's just that mm-hmm. the publishing of this book gives me permission to be able to say this out loud. So, you know, the book just created an opening, maybe a, a content so that people could start talking about these things. And it became something that women would pass to other women, you know, and millions of little sisters came into my life, mostly little sisters, a few older sisters, mostly little sisters, men, as we say, mm. came into my life and started conversing with me about what I regard as the most important issues of our lives. You know, how do we live our lives as women? How do we face the world around us? How do we face a society around us? And how do we face love and marriage? And what roles do they play in our lives? So I think from a content standpoint, my work has changed with the times. I mean, now, you know, people started saying, hey, let's not get married before age 30. And let's learn how to become Miss Wright and become Miss Wright before we marry Mr. Wright or marry, you know, whomever of any gender. So I think that, you know, now when you talk to this generation of women who are confronted with that book, they say, you know, that book changed the way I look at my life. And to a certain extent, you know, people say that it changed society and that now it doesn't seem so shocking. You know, of course, other things have, have uh, many, many other factors have also led to uh, more liberation of women, at least in their minds, or at least an openness of women to, um, to having an openness of society to accepting different ways of living for women instead of just one particular way. So I guess from a content standpoint, my career has changed. And um, now I'm focused less on saying, hey, inspiration or chitang, as we say, chicken soup, and more focused on how do we put these practices into action? How do we realize the full potential of our lives in our careers, in love? You know, so now it's more step-by-step instruction, whereas eight years ago, seven years ago, my work is more inspiration. So I think that's, from a content standpoint, how my career has changed, along with, I think, society's attitudes. From a format standpoint, you know, my book came out in 2012. It was at the absolute height of fashion magazines' power in mm. China. I mean, you would walk down the street in Beijing and other big cities, first and second tier cities, and see all these chow tens, like these um, magazine stands that would sell all these magazines. And a huge portion of them would be fashion magazines. And the fashion magazines themselves were massive. They came out once a month, be like Cosmo, Marie Claire, Figaro, et cetera, et cetera. And many of them would be so thick, they would have to come in two books wrapped together in cellophane. Each book would be like an inch and a half thick because they're so filled with ads. So these fashion magazines, because there were so many global brands that were rushing into China at the time and local brands that were trying to get in front of women. Fashion magazines then in China were slightly different from fashion magazines in the United States in that there was so many ads that they needed more content and they would profile not just like the Hollywood celebrities that you see in Vanity Fair or in fashion magazines in the United States. They would actually profile regular women, you know, like me or other women around Mm. China. And of course, you know, give them a lot of makeup and make them look beautiful, but there would be deep profiles about them. And so fashion magazines at the time were not just fashion magazines. They were really the women's media at the time. 
and women would buy them and they would save them like books and they would pass them around to their friends. So each fashion magazine would get read multiple times and women would stack them up. You know, like when we were small, we would have, you know, the entire Encyclopedia Britannica set or something. They would like collect these fashion magazines every month and keep them as books and pass them around. So when my book came out in 2012, and they were always looking for new content, my book and by extension, me and my family became perfect fodder for fashion magazines because the women who are reading them were the women that were slightly more educated in China, slightly more interested in new ideas. And my family and I were in China for a couple of months that summer. And, you know, fashion magazines basically drove the spread of my book along with, you know, all of my, of course, original fans from the Global Inside blog and um, social media. So, so that book, you know, really caught on. And then since then, from a media format standpoint, fashion magazines have really died very quickly. Many of those fashion magazines that originally powered my book's rise um, are not even around anymore in print. Many of them have turned into online media. Some of them have disappeared entirely. All those magazine stands are gone, but they've been replaced by Weibo, WeChat, which have risen since then, and long-form video and short-form video. So as those new forms of media have risen, I have been creating all kinds of other types of media, mostly in partnerships with brands who are interested in connecting with women, not just on a product level, but on a spiritual level as well. So principally, my major brand partnerships have included like Olay, ProX, SK2, those are skincare brands, uh, Mercedes-Benz, um, and many other local brands as well. And so I actually want to backtrack you a little bit to your your blog for study abroad students. And when you were reached out uh, to buy the Cidic and the book publishers that said, you know, there's no one else out here that can write this, can you write it? Mm-hmm. How did you think about, and did you think, I think I read this somewhere, that, you know, I'll use the blog to test this out. Were you trying to figure yeah. out what angle to take? Were you trying to test the waters if it was something that your followers were interested in? How did you end up using that blog in those early days to prepare yourself for the endeavor of writing a book? Because that's no easy task. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of crazy. I was 42 at the time. I'd never done much writing except maybe, you know, my speeches when I was deputy mayor. Um, You know, I've just done some writing over the course of professional life. I'd never thought about writing a book. So when Cidic Press, you know, first approached me, I was like, are these people cuckoo? And who is Cidic Press? You know, uh, what is Cidic Press? I then did some research on the company and found, well, they were at the time the most powerful publisher in China. And they were the importer of all the major foreign titles that included, you know, the Steve Jobs book, the Bill Gates book, the Henry Kissinger book, you know, Who Moved My Cheese? Basically, every every important foreign title, you know, was probably imported by Cidic Press. But they had never, it was a new thing for them too, because every title that they'd ever published by a foreigner, they had bought the rights from from foreign publishers like Random House or whatever. They had never worked directly with an author from outside of China. So, um, So that was a new experiment for them to reach out to me. And when they reached out to me, I was like, are you crazy? You know, I'm Chinese American. How could I do this? You know, I'm so busy. I, I, I have my career. 
I just gotten married. I just had a baby. Uh, at first, I said no. They actually came after me over the course of a year. After a year of pushing me, actually, life is quite mysterious. I just had my second baby, which was also a girl. So when they came back to me then, at the end of a year, I was like, you know, this might be a kind of interesting project to think about what kind of a world my two girls will face and how should they face this global yeah. society. But I was still skeptical that I could write a book that would be useful for people all the way over in China who'd grown up in a different way than I had. And so I said, well, I'll just on my careers blog put up one test post, which is what I would say to those women. So I wrote a post called Do Not Marry Before Age 30 and put it up as a test on my blog. And this particular blog post started going viral immediately because, you know, we have Google Analytics, so we can start to see the, where traffic comes from. And this particular post started getting massive traffic, not just from all around the world, as my previous career blogs had gotten, but especially within China. It started getting so much traffic that by the second day, the servers crashed. That's crazy. And that's when I was like, oh, okay, these crazy people from Citic Press Company, you know, maybe they have a point here. Since I just had my baby, I happened to be on a maternity leave. So I said, you know, I'll just turn my maternity leave into a book leave. And so I actually spent a year, a really wonderful year, putting myself back to grad school. I used the book as an excuse to do all kinds of research and thinking about what it means to be a woman. You know, I did a lot of research into philosophy, psychology, literature of all ages, um, history. Basically, I used that to, to think about everything I like to think about. And during that, and then I started writing the book. And during that year, my husband asked me every day, is anyone going to read this book in China? And I was like, you know, I have no idea, <laughs> but I'll just write the book that I want in my life right now at age 42, mm. 43. So that's what I did. And um, the book publishing world, the media world in China is so incredibly different from the United States. Tell us more about that. Well, I turned my, my manuscript in. I remember in Chinese, I also work with a blog reader of mine who really wanted to, to translate it because I didn't know how to find a translator. And um, so she and I kind of worked together on the Chinese, you know, I would use Google Translate or at the time, which was very, very poor, and try to, you know, figure out what she was writing. And finally, I turned it in in Chinese on May 3rd of 2012. And I sent it into the Citic Press and I said, you know, I crave, I love feedback. Um, you know, I'm a first-time author. I have no pride of authorship. I want this to be a good book. I have no idea, you know, whether you'll like this. Please give me as much feedback as possible, and I'll try to make it better. And what they wrote back was, we will publish this book on May 23rd. Please come to China. <laughs> <laughs> 20 days later, I was like, what? Are you crazy? I mean, by the time they got back to me, it was like almost two weeks away. And they said, we want to publish this, you know, in Shanghai on, you know, we're, we're slotting it in right away. So, you know, I mean, it was a mad scramble. I mean, that's just one thing. In the United States, my author friends tell me, you turn in a final, final manuscript and it takes a year. But things in China happen lightning fast. Um, the media, you know, the way, not just, you know, how quickly books get published, how quickly everything gets published across every kind of media you know, now we're working in in, um, in video. Now I published a second book in 2017, but now I'm focusing on the world of Jishu Fufei, which is online training. 
this is a completely new, you know, multi-billion dollar industry that's just popped up in the last couple of years. And, you know, and every month this landscape is changing. And so, you know, it's incredibly exciting um, and incredibly challenging to be working in media in China when the, the forms of media, not just the content of media, you know, all the the hot words and hot topics and everything changes constantly and so vibrantly, but the formats of media. You know, I think in the United States in the last 10 years, our social media has been really strangled by Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. How much have these things changed? You know, Twitter has changed in the last 15 years by going from, what, 140 characters to 280 characters, you know, big whoop. But in China, in the meantime, because they haven't had these major dominant media that I basically have control. Um, it's just constantly rollicking change. And um, that makes things fun. Now about Jersher Fufei, I know that in a lot of Western media, it oftentimes gets confused with podcasting. Um, yeah. Can you explain maybe a little bit about why it gets confused and what you think makes Jersha Fufei different from Western podcasting? The media is so different in China that sometimes when we just read the English reporting, we only see a part of it. Like, for example, I was reading some English reporting about how sci-fi, um, science fiction novels are getting so big in China. And this is this one area of print media that's getting so huge. I was like, well, yes, sci-fi is getting huge in China, fiction, but a lot of it is not sold in print books like you would expect in the United States. A lot of it is sold like these subscriptions where you have a sci-fi author that you love and you buy a hundred chapters from this person, but the chapters don't come to you in print. They come on your phone and they might be like two screens a day or a screen in the morning and a screen in the afternoon. And then there's like massive commenting underneath the screen, like every screen is a mini chapter. Mm. And then it becomes super social because people freak out like, oh my God, I can't believe this just happened in this character. And so it becomes more community-based um, among the readers who read it. But then it also becomes more interactive with the author because the author can react to how people are reacting to the characters you know, through the future story arc. So an, an author might be only writing a few screens ahead, like a couple days ahead of where her readers are, right? So that's just one example of how you say, okay, science fiction is, you know, hot in China, but do you really know what that means? It could be taking a form in a totally different way. With podcasting, it's similar. So sometimes we, we hear about how, like, for example, Shimalaya is a major podcasting platform. They do have podcasts the way that we have podcasts in the United States. And I'm an avid consumer of, of podcasts in the United States. Um, but it's not like the ad-supported podcasts that we're used to here. First of all, a lot of it is paid by podcasts. That's what qualifies as 知识付费. 知识 means knowledge and 付费 means paid. You might buy like 40 podcasts by an economist that you love. And if you subscribe to the series or a year series, then every morning you might get a minute or two minutes of an economic update from that person. So that's, that's one format that it might take. A format that I kind of 
like more because I create media for women primarily is I prefer things that are more interactive. So for example, I'm coming out next month with an online training camp. We call it Ying, with a platform called MomSelf. So this is a career planning for working moms course. It will have a series of like 17 lessons. Each one will be an audio lesson that'll be, let's say, 10 or 15 minutes long. But in addition to your hearing this course, you will be subscribed to a WeChat group. You know, we have WeChat groups that are communities of up to 500. And you can talk about these courses and converse and react to each one. And then we have these xiaolaoshi or little teachers who are moderators of these WeChat groups. So for example, we did a little test. We already sold a couple of the lessons just to see how the market would react. And there were 2,000 people who bought it. And there's four WeChat groups. And some people started writing back and then you know, immediately like massive amounts of comments and long personal reactions. And then they complained like, oh, I want to write. There was a 6,000 word limit to to my ability to comment on this course and I oh want to keep going. So, so I think that um, to me, I'm really excited about the interactive nature of these platforms in China because I think that women learn differently from men. You know, I send my, my daughter to a girl's school because there's all this research that shows that girls and women do learn differently from men. Women like to learn collaboratively and like to discuss more than men. And so since I work in women's media, I love this idea that I'm working with online training camps, you know, and then I take, I take the feedback of my readers or my listeners, and then I write some more courses you know, I put in some bonus courses to react to some of the things that they said. And then I can spotlight some of the great stories of, hey, this this listener put how she put one of my lessons into practice in her life and the results that she got. My team can reach out to her and say, hey, what a great story you have. Can Joy write about this or can Joy interview on her own social media? Because again, as women, I want to create a community of sisters. And if I was only working in print media, writing a book, that is just a one-to-many mm. format, right? But now, not only can the Ying have its own series of communities, I can double back and take some of these things because I have, you know, incredible listeners, some of whom are better writers than me, and I can take some of their stuff and help them, Puguang, you know, help them to spread their own stories on my social media. So we can really work together both in the paid product and then my, my product, you know, my Weibo, my Gongzhong Hub, my Weixin Gongzhong Hub, which are free, my WeChat official account, which are free to subscribe. And I can work together all these paid products and free products so that even people who are listening or watching my products, my social media for free, can benefit from what people in my courses are taking. The other part of this would be that my online courses, let's say they sell now for 399 RMB to join these um, online paid courses. That is a completely different business model than a book, right? Because a book, you can buy my books for 2025 RMB on Dandang Wang. You know, that's ridiculously cheap. But you think for 25 Kwai, which will be like, what, $3, $3 $4? That is for a printed book shipped to your house, 
come on, that's ridiculous, right, for us content creators. That's why you can't survive um, just doing printed books as an author in China. They're just too cheap. But when you start to move into these more advanced um, social media products, you know, so my my Xilin Ying will cost $399, 399 RMB. But if you want more of Joy, you can come over time. We'll be setting up some in-person trainings. You can join a small group of women, you know, a group of 50 women and pay 10,000 RMB to be with me for a Saturday or a Saturday and Sunday in your city. So now, because there's so many different formats, you can get Joy for free on our social media. You can get her books that, you know, for 20 kwai, if you want something that's more interactive. So at different price points, you can get different levels um, of products. And, you know, in economics, we learned that consumers benefit with an increased variety of choices. Yes. And it also just gives you this new option. I think you bring up a great point about many to many. And you're able to reach a greater audience. I mean, it was probably, I imagine that a book tour is exhausting going to so many different cities and meeting people. And it's great to meet in person, but to have a new avenue, a new platform to which you can connect faster, you can have more real-time responses, you can get more people engaged. That's really exciting. And it's something that I think that the Western podcast landscape just hasn't figured out yet. There really isn't a yeah. An equivalent of, uh, you know, when it's translated, the online paid knowledge space um, that China has. Yes. Yeah, I think this is really an area, like, you know, I think that sometimes when you when you listen to some voices in America um, who, who don't watch closely what's going on in China, they say, oh, China, they're just a bunch of copycats. They're just stealing our IP. But actually in this area, China is so far ahead. Um. And I think that, you know, many American companies can, would do well to look to China for these types of innovation and say, what can we actually import to America? If you can put aside our national pride and, and see that um, there's, there's a lot to learn. The other thing that I would just say is that you know, we haven't even talked about video. Video is so powerful. And um, right in the United States, you know, you bring up the analogy of if you go on a book tour, you might go around and, you know, go to Iowa and then you'd be lucky maybe if you go to a bookstore and 30 people show up or, you know, sometimes five people show up. I would never go on a book tour like that in China without it being live broadcast on my Weibo so that let's say I might do a speech where 2000 people show up, which happens, you know, pretty often. But I can live broadcast it on my Weibo and on Wang Yi and other platforms. At the same time, 200,000 might show up. And then that video might live there forever. And 2 million or 3 million people watch it, you know, over the next week or two. You know, it all depends on what your goal is. My mission, you know, I have a written down mission, which is to help 100 million Chinese women uh, realize their full potential in life. So since my goal is 100 million, you know, I feel like I don't want to do anything that's small because the opportunity costs my time. I only want to do things. I only want to do projects that will reach a lot of women and that will cause great impact in their lives. It's great to have a mission because I used to be on the receiving end 
who I am on the receiving end of all kinds of companies and requests who are like, hey, I'd like to partner with you on this or that. You know, I was a real estate developer for 10 years. So there are real estate companies in China that, that say, hey, can you help me, you know, improve my real estate project in the United States? And I used to have trouble sorting through all these different requests and say, you know, what, how should I spend my time? But now that I have a mission, which is to help 100 million Chinese women seize the full potential of their lives, that's a great lens to quickly filter out, first of all, what are the things that I should do? I want to spend my time on big and impactful projects that will help me get closer to my mission and work with big players that will help me get there. Support for this week's show comes from Brattle Street Educational Counseling. Stressed out about college applications? Brattle Street Educational Counseling can help. They provide guidance throughout the whole process and offer workshops for students looking to work in small groups at a rigorous pace. The workshops include hours of one-on-one -on -one attention. From college essays to standardized test prep to interviewing and applications, Brattle Street offers support for any student. Brattle Street, B-R-A-T-T-L-E, street.com. Helping you get where you want to go. And to be able to help 100 million Chinese women, it's a pretty big footprint, which also means that you have a lot of influence in a sense if, if you're even touching a fraction, a portion of that. And this is a term that's used more often in China, I think, KOL, key opinion leader. What does it mean to you when you first started and how has it evolved to be labeled or to be called out as a KOL? And have you felt any sort of responsibility tied to that? Right. So in China, um, we use the word, you know, one of the funny things about working in China is there are a lot of U.S. Uh, American English yeah. acronyms that are thrown around all the time in China that are not even really used so much in the United States. Like, like for example, when you go out with friends, sometimes people say, do you want to yes. AA? It's like AA. What does that even mean? AA means yep, go AA Dutch, or, right? Yeah. Everybody. Yeah, yeah. So there's all these funny things that, I mean, it's just so fun working in China, so many different things. But um, so KOL is one of those English acronyms that is used more in China than the United States, a key opinion leader. So these are basically people that are not the big movie stars, but would be a second level of influential people. Actually, movie stars, some, some movie stars, sometimes people include movie stars in this category. They're influential people in society that brands will partner with to get messages across. Okay, so uh, this whole category, sometimes it includes movie stars, sometimes it includes this category of what they call Wang Hong. Wang Hong are internet red. Now we mostly refer that category to these like pretty girls, good looking young boys who sit in front of a camera and do live broadcasting. You know, they might just sit in front of a camera every single night for four hours at a time. And in the past, these young girls would be quite lascivious. They would just sit there and eat a banana in a very sexual way or, you know, just be very sexy and dance sexy and all this other stuff. The government has cracked down on the sexiness and some mm. of these Wang Hong. But most of the time we talk about Wang Hong as being people who are very pretty. They're, in fact, there's a whole industry called Wang Hong Lian, like cosmetics industry that helps you develop this K-beauty, Korean beauty inspired look of these, you know, good looking young boys and girls. 
So there are a lot of brands that will partner with those Wang Hong, and call, sometimes they're called KOLs as well. But I think that generally now, when we talk about KOLs, primarily we'll be talking about people like me, not necessarily movie stars and not necessarily Wang Hong, but people who are influential because of their work. Um, you know, I'm not the most beautiful woman in the world. I would never be like the top spokesperson. So, for example, if you take a brand like SK2 or Olay, okay, these are the two major, probably the two biggest skincare brands in China. Olay is mass market. Um, 800 million women in China have used Olay. It is the first major Western brand that came into China. Came to China in the 1980s, and it is P&G's flagship brand. Right. So Olay, you know, they tell me I've been for the last eight years Olay's number one KOL, and I'm the only KOL who is allowed to work with Olay and SK2 and Proax, all three P&G brands. But I'm not their top spokesperson, right? Olay's top spokespeople are Lin Jiling, who is a major Taiwanese actress and model, and this Victoria's Secret model in China. SK2's major spokesperson is Kate Blanchett. Uh, worldwide, so they are the, the top top spokespeople. They get you know major multi million dollar contracts, and, and for the most part, they'll be like in print ads and TV commercials for these brands. The next category down is the KOLs. So we would get rolled out for major product launches, and also to help these brands develop more spiritual connections and become more jitty cheer on the ground to develop closer connections with fans and users. So, like for me, there are subway ads that are made um, of me of Olay, and when they roll out new products, sometimes they'll make pictures of me and put them on all the makeup counters in China, but. Everything that comes with me and my image also comes with their brand message that is unrelated to the product. So, for example, every PNG product will have a product message, like this will help your skin get whiter or something, but will also have a brand purpose, like no fear of aging, you know, or in SK2's case, change your destiny. So, so my job as a as a KOL is not to talk about necessarily product qualities. Because that's what the Victoria's Secret model is there to show with her pictures, but my job is to really help them bring to life their brand purpose. What does it mean to change your destiny? What does it mean to face life courageously and not be afraid of aging? Right. So Olay just did a big thing around the fact that I'm turning 50 in July. You know, where I do a lot of writing about how I feel turning 50, and how great it is, and how. You know how I feel like every day I'm reinventing myself, and how exciting that is. So I guess the KOL's role is more,、um, in my case, it's it's not just having my picture out there.、Um, it's really more helping to、uh, to lend, I guess, more content, more story to、um, certain brands that really want to develop a more spiritual connection. With their customers and not just connect with them through their actual product. That's really interesting. I actually haven't had anyone fully explain what it's like to be a KOL in China and how that's. I think it's sometimes difficult to draw the distinction because you know you have very in very common media language here in the states. For example, it's a lot of conversations about us、uh, social media influencers, Instagram influencers. 
And it, it seems like the idea of KOL is slightly different in China, especially based on the way that you talk about it. It's, it's more expanded. It's more of a formal partnership. But it's mm-hmm. not as you break it down in sort of the different tiers and the types of expectations. That's very interesting. Okay, yeah. For example, if I mean, if your listeners are interested, you can go to my website and see a two-minute video that I did with SK2 and Harper's Bazaar. It was produced by Harper's Bazaar, which is um, the transmedia group, like the biggest fashion media conglomerate in China, or one of the two biggest, and SK2. So it's branded SK2. But it's just me looking at the camera and talking about what it means to take charge of changing our own destiny, right? So uh, my website is joychenyu.com, J-O-Y-C-H-E-N-Y-U.com. So on that homepage, you can, you know, if you're interested. So this particular video, you know, it was produced by this fashion magazine. SK2 put it across all their networks and media. And then, you know, within the first week, over 3 million people had viewed it and commented on it. And so that helps to extend their product into not just department stores and the place that their ads normally are, but it extends um, their product into social conversations, right? So that's the power of these types of video and audio and blog content. So Joy, you've talked a lot about your different KOL experiences And I would like to know a little bit more about something that I think might fall into that category is that you were on The Voice, but for speeches, so to speak, Mm -hmm. in China. And I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit more about that experience. Sure. Um, I was on a, a speech competition show called Super Orator in English and Chinese called 超级演说家. And this is a super popular show in China. It's kind of like the voice, but it's for speech giving instead of um, singing. So they, the, the, the um, producers reached out to me and asked me to join the show. I would be the first non-Chinese you know, passport holder on the show, the first, I guess, foreign passport holder on the show. And um, I thought, well, sounds interesting, sounds kind of fun. And so I agreed to go on. So I remember I arrived in Beijing to go on the show. I, I arrived the day before and I was, as my as typical, I arrived, landed at about five o'clock in the morning on the flight that I like to take from Los Angeles. And um, I went straight to the studio in the morning um, for a 10 o'clock rehearsal. And when I arrived at the studio, I realized that, well, they said, okay, we'd like for you to... Um, to do a rehearsal. So I went on the stage and they said, okay, give your speech. And that's when I realized that there would not be a teleprompter. And I was like, um, could you queue up the teleprompter? They said, oh no, we don't use teleprompters around here. And they said, well, just memorize your speech. And I said, well, it's a 15 minute speech in Chinese and I don't have it memorized. They said, well, memorize it. You have 24 hours between now and tomorrow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you know, I'm from America and we don't really memorize things, especially in a different language than the language we grew up in. I said, well, could you maybe get a teleprompter between now and tomorrow? And they said, no. And I said, well, maybe you can write up some cue cards or have a monitor set up next to the camera. And they said, no, we won't do that either. 
You just need to memorize the speech. I spent 24 hours memorizing a speech in Chinese. It was a 15-minute speech to teach you how to use global CEO hunting methods to hunt down your Mr. Right. Mm. Um, when I came back the second day, there was another surprise. They had recruited the audience of, let's say, 200 people in three different groups. The first category was of men, but not just any men. They were called yen, straight man's infection. So basically, there's a really hot um, buzzword in China called ai, means straight man's cancer, basically ultra male chauvinists. So they had gone out and recruited men who consider themselves almost ultra male chauvinists or, you know, everyday male chauvinists. Um, so they call themselves straight man's infection group. So they all were sitting in one section of the audience. They were all wearing these hooded capes to, to designate themselves as male chauvinists. The second Ew. group of people, I mean, it's so crazy, you know? I mean, like in America, who would show up for a casting call? But these are men who did. Um, the second group of people they uh, recruited were called Nuhanzi, or like butchy feminists. So they fortunately sat right in front of me in their colored capes. Um, and then the third group of people that they recruited were called Zhanmeizi, or like soft little sisters who are, you know, anti-feminist women. So, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, it's just so funny how in China people would come forward and, you know, want to show up on TV under these labels and then kind of play act in those labels um, in the audience, you know, as audience members communicating with speech givers. So anyway, um, they had eight people giving speeches in this round. I was one of them. And all these audience members, you know, they just kind of played true to form to their characters. I ended up giving the speech in Chinese with no teleprompter. And then when it came time to vote, I basically got sunk by the male chauvinists. It was just really amazing. The whole, the whole experience, the new hens, the, the butchy feminists, they gave me a score of like 92, I think, out of 100. Um, awesome. The right the uh, the soft little sisters gave me a score of like forty something, and then the male chauvinist gave me a score of eleven, and basically booted me off the show. Um, but it was just it was just like the whole thing from beginning to end. Um, the whole like thirty six forty eight hour experience was like one of those experiences when you're not local Chinese, you know, when you're coming from a different country, you go to China, I'm sure you've had this experience. It's like when you work in China, there are all these experiences where you're like, oh my God, this is China. You know, <laughs> it's just like from the requirement that everybody has to memorize the speeches and, you know, because they've been memorizing things since they were young, mm. you know, to them, it's no problem to memorize things and to say them on TV. And then the fact that people go around and parade themselves under all these different gender-based labels. You know, it was just like one of those really crazy, wild, fun, and challenging experiences I think that everyone goes through um, when they work in China. You know, these are the kinds of crazy experiences I think that make it fun for people all around the world to go to China. There are just all the all these things that are happening Um that are cross-cultural and that make you feel like, you know, like, wow, I'm really learning something new. It's really fun. And also it makes you, 
gives you a chance to look back at your own culture and look at your own world in a different way. So Joy, I do have to ask you about what it means to you being Chinese American and seeing that manifest itself in different aspects of your career. Is it something that you talk about? Have you noticed that it has been helpful or a distraction from the work that you do? What's your relationship with your identity? Mm. Well, you know, I grew up, you know, in an immigrant family in the United States. I was born in the United States. Um, And I think that, you know, when I was growing up, my parents didn't speak English well, and I didn't speak English well. I didn't speak Chinese well at all either. So I kind of grew up with feeling very much out of place um, as a Chinese American in a in a very white school, very white surroundings. And so that's why when I started working in China about seven years ago with my first book, I was like suddenly kind of blown away. Like, wow, I remember the first time I went to Tiananmen Square and I was like, oh my God, there are so many Chinese people. (laughs) You know, you just never have that sense of like being part of the majority ethnically um, as a Chinese American in the United States. And then suddenly go to China, it's like, wow, God, everyone, everyone looks like me. I think that being Chinese American has actually been absolutely crucial to my work there. I remember that I I had a conversation with Kaiser about this once, and he said something that really stuck with me. He said, being a Chinese American in China is like operating on zero gravity. I thought that was a very poetic way of saying that when you're Chinese American in China, on one hand, there's an immediate acceptance of you. Because I think that since China is 97% Han Chinese, there there aren't not very many non-Han Chinese in positions of power there. As soon as you walk into a room as a Chinese American, people are like, oh, Tongbao, you know, we're, we're all from the same family. Strangers meet me, fans meet me, and they call me Jie immediately, meaning older sister. And I think that immediate sense of closeness and acceptance would never happen if I were white. And so I think that's been incredibly important to me, especially because I work in the world of self-help media. You know, this immediate sense of, oh, it's my older sister giving me life advice rather than someone who's from a completely different background. So I think that um, whereas being Chinese American in the United States has always entailed a certain amount of invisibility, especially because I work in the media world and you know I don't need to tell you that Asian Americans have really been invisible in Hollywood up until in the last couple of years or so and still are to a, to a large extent. So I think that being Chinese American, if I were tr- to try to do what I'm doing now, be a creator of self-help media for women, I think that it would be really hard. I don't think that white America necessarily wants to get life advice from a Chinese American woman. Um, and so that's why in China, I think it's been actually you know, quite profound. I think that if I was a local Chinese, I wouldn't have had the experiences and therefore the viewpoints um, that make me special you know, and unique in China and give me the opportunity to bring some unique global perspectives to China. So that's how the American part is important. But if I wasn't an ethnic Chinese, then I don't think they would really listen. In fact, um, the Wall Street Journal did a profile of me last year, a video profile as well as a print profile. And so this writer, John Corrigan, um, shadowed me for a few days going around meeting with fans and taking meetings in China. 
And I remember he got on this subject and he, he asked fans, do you consider Joy Chinese or American? And every fan replied, well, she's Chinese. And, he, and then he would push and he would say, but you know she's American, right? She has a U.S. passport. She was born in America. And the Chinese woman would say, well, she's, but she's Chinese. You know, she's Zhongguoren, she's Huaren. And then finally, with his pushing, they would say, well, okay, she's, she has an American passport, but she's Chinese. So I think that that really goes to this sense of once you're Chinese, once you ha- are Ch- Han Chinese ethnically, no matter where you are around the world, you're still Chinese, you know, and that's a, that's a really fundamentally different identity than being American since, you know, America is a melting pot of people from all over the world. And you do have two young daughters. Is there anything that you've learned across your journey so far and in helping women be their best selves that you really want to instill or you really want for your own daughters to to understand about the world? I think that, you know, women in China have been taught, everyone in China has been taught since they were born to, you know, to go a certain way, uh, the way that society wants you to go, especially women. You know, everything's about Tinghua, everything's about uh, listening, obeying others around you. I mean, it just gives me chills when I see couples out, you know, couples in their 20s and 30s and boyfriends and husbands call their wives and girlfriends, guai guai, you know, shout guai guai. It's like, oh, little obedient one. Um, You know, women are just taught to listen to others so much and never to listen to their own hearts in China. Of course, it's this way for women all around the world, but especially so in China. You know, and this all this social pressure to marry is just one piece of that. Um, and so to the extent that I can help women as young as possible, even girls, to say, you know what, your ideas matter. You matter. Not just, you know, to the extent that you are able to marry a rich guy. Not just to the extent that you're able to go to brand name college. You actually matter. And you control your life much more than you think you do. And what you need to do is start taking control of your life. As for my own girls, I'm hoping that from their time they're born, they're now eight and 10, from the time they're small, um, they don't go through that period of the first 20 or 30 years of their lives of just listening to others. I'm hoping that the lessons um, that I share with women in China of learning to listening to your own heart, trusting yourself, learning to be confident, learning to be independent, that these are lessons that are baked in with my girls from their early childhood. You impart so much knowledge and wisdom to a whole generation of women, but where or who did you really find a source of advice and inspiration across your career? Mm. I think the most um, important mentor that I've had is a woman um, called Maureen Kendall when I was 21 years old and graduated from college and moved to Los Angeles and didn't know a single soul and was supporting myself and had no money and no connections. And I was lucky enough to meet her. And she was, is known as California's kingmaker. She had a lobbying firm at the time 
And when people wanted to run for office or mayor of Los Angeles or governor of California, they would go and and try to seek Maureen's blessing. And she and I just happened to get to know each other. I, I went into her life. Um, I started helping her. She used to have these legendary Saturday night poker parties where California's most powerful business and political people would gather together and drink and carouse all night. And I started just helping her out, organizing the parties, setting out the chairs, picking up napkins. I was like a started out working, volunteering as a little social assistant for her. She and I became very close and she's just an incredible woman. She's not just so successful in her career, but more importantly, she's always showed me how to live. You know, she always said to me, Joy, I've had three husbands and countless lovers. So when it comes to men, you have to listen to me. Um, she gave me so much advice about men and how to understand men over the years. But much more than that, she's, she's always laughing. She's always smiling. She's just turned 80. When she was 68, she sold off uh, a company and she decided that she was always interested in education. So she went back and got a PhD in, in education. And at the time, people said, do you understand that you're going to be 74 by the time you get your PhD? She said, you know, in six years, I'm going to be 74 anyway, and I'd rather have a PhD than not. <laughs> you know, and, and then for the, last, for the last six years since then, she's been changing California's education system for the better. So- so I think that, you know, more than anything, Maureen has showed me that it doesn't matter what people around you say, you know, you're in charge of your own life. And every day she laughs, she loves life, and she's like a magnet for men who want to be near her, women who want to be near her, um, and everyone who wants to partner with her. So I think that Maureen has been my guiding star. They call her my Irish mother and me, her Chinese daughter in Los Angeles. But if I can share just a little bit of her spark and love for life and wisdom to women in China, then I'll have done something. I really love that, especially I think it nicely comes full circle. And with that, Joy, I would really like to thank you so much for coming on Ta for Ta. I know we focused on a very specific but interesting snippet of your long and successful career. And it it's been great to hear about everything from you know, what it's like to be a KOL in China to the different forms of media that you've produced and you are currently producing and will continue to produce uh, in the future and how you've brought together this community of women that it seems like really support each other and build each other up. We need more of that. Great to be with you today, Juliana. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Again, many thanks to Kaiser Quo, co-producer, and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network. I really do enjoy catching up on the latest that's happening in culture, politics, news, everything really related to China. And if you'd like to contact me and my team, questions, comments, any general musings can be sent to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.